This episode is brought to you by Rewind. Rewind offers e-commerce brands a solution that protects their stores against unexpected downtime. Rewind adds an undo button to your store, continually saving every change you make and backing up the critical data which runs your business. This episode is also brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable and durable outdoor furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water stain, fade, and mold resistant. This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. In case you don't already know, Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce companies. Stay tuned to hear from Alexandra Collis, the Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly, an online fashion powerhouse, to hear how Gorgeous enables Princess Polly to manage all of their customer service channels in one place. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 96 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Zoe Sakutis, the co-founder and CEO of Earth and Star. Founded in 2020 by serial wellness entrepreneurs Erica and Zoe, Earth and Star is a functional mushroom company bringing powerful immune-supporting benefits through ready-to-drink lattes, coffee, chocolate, and gummies. In this episode, Zoe shares with us her entrepreneurial journey from growing up as a tomboy in northeastern Pennsylvania as the youngest of four with a single mom, to working as a dog groomer, to attending Marymount Manhattan College and becoming a raw foodist, to building the popular juice brand Blueprint with her co-founder Erica, which was acquired in 2012 by the Haines Celestial Group. We talk about how the DMV messed up her very first driver's license, in a good way, the challenges she faced in fundraising for Earth and Star as a successful entrepreneur, and how she would have done a few things differently with the launch of the company. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning, or you can check us out online at stairwaytoceo.com. Until next time, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Zoe. Nice to meet you. I'm excited to have you on the show today to hear your story in building Earth and Star. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And where are you calling in from right now? I am in Brooklyn, very gray and dreary Brooklyn, New York right now uh, in kind of, are we in the dead of winter right now? Sort of? Yeah. I would say Not for yet. New York, January yeah. is so dead of winter. Yeah. Yeah. In the middle. So, yeah. Where in Brooklyn? I am in Fort Greene. Oh, cool. Do you know, are you in Brooklyn too? I lived in New York for many, many years. I last lived in Williamsburg. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was in Williamsburg for mm, approximately 16 years, if you can believe that. Wow. Oh my- <laughs> that's how, I'm like, is that how old I am? Maybe. Or that's how young I was. I was very, I was like first, 
first wave Williamsburg. And that's hilarious. <laughs> what year was the first wave? I'm trying to think like 2006. Oh, way earlier. No, no, no. I was there when I was like, uh, maybe a freshman class. So it was like 99, I would say it would be like the first wave. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Before my time I was there, like I started hanging out in New York in 2005. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That's when it was like Williamsburg. You don't really want to go there. It was kind of sketchy. Yeah, there was a dead body found in the dumpster in the back of my loft building at one point. So, wow. <laughs> so, I remember the, the exactly. cop showed up at the door and he was like, um, did you happen to hear uh, or see any like unusual activity like last night, whatever? And my roommate and I were like, oh my God, yeah, we heard like a gunshot at like one in the morning. And he's what? like, no, he was like, not related. Like, Stop. Oh my God. They're like, this guy, this was, we were, we were like hoping you say you heard a chainsaw, right? <laughs> There yes. Was, uh, was like, the noise. Yeah. Um, yes. anyway, yeah, it's changed yeah, for the better, I guess. It has. So, it's yeah. very safe now. It's, but yeah, at that time it was like really dodgy to go there. Um, so that's pretty crazy. You lived there, um, at that time. Yeah, it was fun. Cool. And so where are you from originally? Originally hail from the great state of Pennsylvania. I don't know if we can call it a great state, but it's a state that everyone it drives is. through. Um, yeah, it but it's a lot of weight, you know? It does. <laughs> it's uh, I'm from Northeastern PA. So like right where New York and New Jersey come together. I have to really specify that because Pennsylvania is a big state. It's very big. I'm from yeah. Delaware. It's a very small state, but oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So where, what, where would we mean? Northeastern? What, what about? So I grew up like on the Delaware river. Oh my there gosh. Go. I know. Everyone's so... like, I know where Delaware is the Delaware river. I'm like, does You're that like... even go into Delaware? I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> I've never I even seen it. I would have to assume otherwise. You know, so. the name, I don't yeah. know. Maybe it's Delaware too inspired. Yeah. 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 So I grew up in, in Northeastern PA, sort of like the edge of the Poconos on the stick in the sticks, like very tiny town. Cold. Sounds cold. Yeah. Um, well, same as here. I mean, it's weird. It's like two hours, you know, two and a half hours from the city, but it just feels like a total, I mean, very like rural, like one stoplight town, <laughs> but yeah. And then I went to high school and, New Jersey, which was a little less rural, thankfully. So you moved from Pennsylvania to New Jersey. I didn't. I, I commuted because it was like right on the border. And so uh, there was a very short bus that came and picked up like the three or four kids who in my town went to this like private Catholic school in New Jersey. I went to a Catholic high school too. Right. Good times. (laughs) Great uniforms. Miss those. I loved it. I have to say, because I went from public school to private school and I so preferred a wearing a uniform because I hate thinking about clothes so easy. And I liked, uh, I don't know. I liked, I kind of was like craving the discipline at that time. So I, I liked it. I initially thought that uniforms could help level the playing field, you know, for people that didn't have style. But then but there's like little things, though, that I learned that, like, you know, back in my day, it was like wearing the Birkenstock clogs were cool and and hiking up the skirt just enough. And the pleats making those, you know, there's like a whole style within the uniform. Exactly. Yes. The modifications are so many. And I had um, my personal style with my uniforms a little bit more grunge. I was like definitely well I'm tall so I didn't need to like hike up my skirt or look very weird so I was like a little more like you know right at the knee and I had like the steel toe like Doc Martens and it's a little bit a little edgier but yeah I know those girls what they did to their up I know the ones that you're talking about with the Birkenstocks oh yeah that was my crew and you weren't you, it was totally like not part of dress code like you would get demerits or whatever written up all the time for it but yeah yeah <laughs> 
couldn't have an open heel. Right. Exactly. Oh that God. was the whole thing. Oh my thing. God. Did we go to the same high school? I feel like we did. We need did to maybe to compare. Yeah. <laughs> Went to St. Mark's actually. <laughs> They're but brothers. Some, right. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we're sisters. <laughs> <laughs> Weirder things have happened. That's hilarious. So, so before high school, let's like reel it back to like childhood, childhood, when you were really young, what were you like as a kid? Like, what did you want to be when you grew up? Like, did you have siblings? What were the dynamics at home? So you want to go, you want to start with the trauma? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Childhood psychology. Let's talk about the PTSD. Um, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I was the youngest of four two boys, two girls. And, um, you know, I had like a very, I guess like a gentler word would be like a scrappy childhood, not a ton of, you know, authority presence. My parents got divorced when I was like very, I think I was three. Is that like an age you don't really like remember much? So does it, do you feel like it didn't really affect you? Well, I think it certainly leaves like some kind of imprint on your nervous system. I don't have like working memories to draw on, but I do have a, yeah, like I, 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 it's not like I never saw my father again, but like, you know, I don't remember the experience before they got divorced. And certainly like my interaction with him was like few and far between after they got divorced, but yeah. So my dad is from Greece and they all, his, his whole crew lives in New Jersey. All my cousins that I grew up with very tight knit community. They all live like all 8,000 of them live within like, you know, three miles of each other. Um, but yeah, I grew up in PA. Um, my mom was an artist. She, you know, single mom raising four kids also went to school, you know, so it was a bit, yeah, I don't know how on earth she did it now that I have two kids. I'm like, Oh my God. I know. Right. Yeah. I have one. And I'm like, how the hell does anyone do anything with any amount of kids? <laughs> but I will say though, this is the one thing I did figure out as a, as you know, the youngest of four is that after a certain amount of kids, you're kind of like, you're, you're like, I, I'm pretty sure I was raised by my siblings, like at a, at a young age, because your parents are just like, oh, you got this. Like they're, they become confident and they can actually do things like these little tasks. So you really, uh, you, I think you tend to rely on them which is scary, but I'm pretty sure that's how, pretty sure that's how I was raised. Um, but yeah, I was a total latchkey kid. And so what does that mean? Like, what were you into? Growing up, I was not into girly things. Maybe, I don't know. It's sort of me because I had two older brothers and I just felt like it was more fun to hang out with them and sort of kick the ball around. My sister is five years older. So she was sort of like, not that interested in entertaining me. <laughs> Um, or do I was like, wanted to be her so badly, but she was just not giving me the time of day. Oh, uh, I know. I just followed her around like a puppy and she was like, get away from me. Um, and I wasn't, I don't know. I wasn't like a, a girly girl. Like I definitely was, I was into playing with boys. I liked to like run around the playground and, you know, compete and like, you know, I liked sort of like rough house, I guess sounds weird, but I don't think, you know, we didn't really have any money. So I definitely wasn't doing a lot of like extracurricular activities, just another thing. And like, now that I have two kids, they're, they have so many things, like they do so many activities, which cost money, but, (laughs) um, but I didn't really have that. It was definitely like, go entertain yourself. I'll be home from work at five. Like you walk yourself home, you know, 
it was a little, you know, I mean, it was a different time, but also not in a million years what I would expect, you know, that I would never like tell my kids to go like walk themselves home from school. It's terrifying. Um, I was terrified, but yeah, no, I think, um, I don't know. I think I was pretty artistic. My mom was an art, you know, art teacher. It definitely trickles down a little bit, but yeah, I think that, you know, for the most part growing up, it was like, fun. I think I had a very fun sort of upbringing, even though we didn't really have much. I think siblings kind of make everything more, more exciting. Is there anything like entrepreneurial that kind of happened when you look back, you're like, no, that was actually pretty entrepreneurial of me back in the day. Maybe that's where it started. All three of my older siblings. So strange. Um, they all had glasses. I'm the only one luckily that did not thankfully. Um, and so I would spend all this time in like the town optometry center Milford is the town, whatever it was called. But anyway, the, um, the optometrist there was so sweet. And she kind of looked at me as like this shy little kid who was just like waiting for her siblings and like the lobby. And she's like, Oh God, what can we give this girl to do? And she's like, you know, one day she's like, I have a kennel. She was also like a dog breeder. She's like, I have a, this is like, how do you get your hustle on before like Uber and like task rabbit? She's like, I'm also a dog breeder. And so she's like, I have a kennel in the backyard of the optometry center. And I was like, what? And I go back there and there's like all these beautiful, like English Springer Spaniels running around. And she just had a litter of puppies. And she was like, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the pick of the litter. If you promise to learn how to, and these were like $700 dogs back then, very bougie kind of like thing to have. Um, if you learn how to show them and groom them and handle them, I was like, okay. So she showed me, she had this like little grooming set up in the basement of the optometry center. So she showed me how to, how to groom dogs. And then she bought, you know, she, she, she lent me her kit actually, all this like equipment, these blades and everything and introduced me to a few dog owners in town. And I just set up shop in her, in the basement of the optometry center as a dog groomer. And I groomed, I think I was like, I got, I don't even know, 11, 12, maybe 11. I know. I was like, how old are you? And you're given like shears or something shears, and razors yeah, to like, <laughs> and I would have to like send them away in the mail to get sharpened. And I was like clipping dogs toenails and sometimes they would like bleed and there's blood. Of, I mean, it was just, or might of, try to bite you or it might bite me. Yeah. And I was just, I would just get my stereo, go down there, spend the afternoon, you know, clocking a few dogs. I would get paid like 40 bucks, 40 bucks an hour. That's pretty good. Pretty good. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, I had like a legit business. It was pretty awesome. But what I thought she was going to trade labor for the dog. Did you get a dog out of the deal? I did get a dog out of the deal. The trade was that I learned how to groom the dogs and I learned how to become a, a junior handler, which is like basically showing dogs. So I would actually, so there's something like that, which is like not so entrepreneurial and is actually just a little bit freakier is that I got a true glimpse uh, into the world of dog grooming, which is, or I mean, I'm sorry, dog showing dogs, which is, you know, again, it's just, it's just like best in show. They're just truly the most eccentric people on the planet. But yeah, no, it was a, it was a good first experience. It was very fun, very um, empowering. Got to make my own hours, got to set my own, you know, rate. I loved it. 
That's pretty awesome. When you said dog show, I'm starting to think of like Netflix where they like dye the dog's hair and like, no, oh my God, animals. I saw that. No, <laughs> I know what you're talking about where they like make art on the dog's fur. Yes. And they, like, yeah. Yeah. Hair, like, yeah. I have no, it's not that at all. It was not that at all. That is like a whole nother underground, like sub sub culture, apparently of like dog showing dogs, which is even, I didn't know it could get freakier than Right. Yeah. That's pretty extreme. And I am not really convinced that those dogs want to look like that. I like, don't I think say. they do. I don't think they do. No. Let yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. I'm not really uh, supportive. I think too much of that for those poor animals that just want to like probably run around and be normal, you know? Yeah. I, it's gross. Um, it's a gross thing, but, um, but yeah. Uh, so that was the first, I guess my first you know, dipping of the toe into the world of entrepreneur. Yeah, it was, it was good. That's awesome. So you did some dog grooming as you went as like your first job, essentially. What were some of your like first jobs, I guess, in high school when you were in Catholic high school? Did you work at a grocery store? I, I definitely worked at a grocery store and was with a waitress. And yeah, I find there are like two different camps, like the sort of like grocery store retail crew and then the sort of food service group right there's like these two buckets of people I find them to be like very different personalities it's almost like west east coast west coast that's hilarious but what happens if you did both like <laughs> of like one foot in each you did both yeah. yeah my sister worked in a grocery store I did you know I was always like from you know the age whatever that I legally could work was working like 13 with like a permit or something like busing tape, busing tables and doing all the things. So I went right into food service. I did have one, I had one stint and I, I thought uh, it was right around Christmas. And I was like, Oh, I know I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go work the system and work at the gap for two weeks so that I could get the discount and then buy all these like clothes. Um, and I did, and I hated it. And I was like, so we're just going to stand here and like fold sweaters. And I, <laughs> And I'm just going to get the same $8 an hour, no matter how busy it is. That doesn't seem fair or how boring it is. So I, that was, that was over very quickly, but no, I always worked in, um, I always worked in food service, hospitality, restaurants, waiting tables, bartending, like every single, you know, every single position, like at a restaurant or a bar, you name it. I probably worked it, which was great. I mean, I worked in my small little town at probably every restaurant we had like which one friendlies like which ones were you no so it was kind of like a quaint little it's like a little antique town so they had a lot of like inns like the dimmick inn the tom quick inn and little restaurants it was the water wheel cafe you know so i i, I definitely waited tables at all of these places water wheel cafe sounds better than all the others yeah the water wheel cafe was great it's still there classic um it's a real draw if anyone is going to Milford Pennsylvania don't skip the water do you ever go back in is your manager still there you're like hey she is really she owns it um and it's funny because I did go back uh in 20 like maybe a a year and a half two years ago right before COVID um and she was still there Nancy she remembered me She loved That's me. Awesome. Um, yeah, it was pretty good. I think, uh, you know, it's a good experience working. I always appreciated the, the sort of hustle of, you know, the restaurant world and hospitality in general and kind of like the very direct line between like, this is what you earned because that's how hard it was or like that's how fast you had to move or that's, you know, so it's definitely requires 
little elbow grease, which I find a little bit more, you know, interesting and exciting. And obviously there's like a people, a people aspect to it, which is fun too. just sort of like observing people and figuring out and anticipating their needs and all, you know, all, all the things that go along with that. And so after high school, you went to Marymount Manhattan College. Did you move right um, after high school where you're like, I got to get to New York or what? Pretty much. Yeah. I went, I mean, I wasn't like, you know, I didn't know, I really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do when I was in high school. I knew that I wanted to, it's funny when I look back now, I think in my mind, I wanted to do um, producing to some extent. Like I like the idea of pulling things together and sort of like having a, a big picture idea and then figuring out how to make it work. And at the time, it's so funny because now there are courses that you can take that are like entrepreneur, you know, like yeah. one-on-one or like this thing didn't <laughs> exist. Did People not didn't exist. Even, they yeah. didn't even use the word entrepreneur. So it wasn't even like I, it was a, an option, right? I didn't even understand what that meant. And so at the time it was like, oh, well, you know, I guess that kind of skill set or that, that a way to use that part of your brain kind of exists in like production or TV or that world. So I very vaguely kind of like went after communications because it just seemed broad enough to kind of pivot whenever you want as you figure it out. But yeah, I kind of ran for, I had no, I had no other school that I was looking. I literally was like, I can't, I literally can't afford any other school. Marymount is like barely in my budget, if you want to even call it that. And um, my only, and I had no desire to live on any kind of like campus with like, a, you know, a Greek scene or anything like, like Penn that. State. I mean, you'd have in-state <sighs> tuition, right? So I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, if I had wanted to do any, you know, I, I wanted nothing to do with Pennsylvania. Um, so yeah, my only requirement was that <laughs> No offense to anyone in Pennsylvania. It's a beautiful state. Uh, but my only requirement was that New York City be my campus. That was it. So it's like, I don't care pretty much where you drop me. I just want to have this be my my playground. Why? Why New York? Had you been there before? Well, you know, it was uh, for as rural as, you know, the town that I grew up in was. It was only two and a half hours away. And I went to school in high school, New Jersey. So it was now another hour closer. So, you know, I would go, we would driving on the weekends and kind of get into not that much trouble, but it was still exciting and fun and to kind of like, fit, you know, try and navigate the city and figure out like, Oh, also I had a, I had a, by some like stroke of luck, I don't know how it happened, but when I was 16, cause you could drive at 16 in Pennsylvania. When I was 16, the DMV screwed up my, um, my birth date. So I think instead of a nine, they drew, they wrote four, which made me exactly 21 on my license at 16. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this is a miracle. Yeah. But your friends were like, you got a lot of best friends from that. <laughs> so like, of course I didn't correct them. And we just kind of like, you know, we would go to the city and have fun. But so, uh, yeah, so I've been 21 for a really long time by the time I was 21. All your friends are like trying to get fake IDs and you're like, I don't even need yeah. No, DMV already messed it up for me. So I'm no, good. <laughs> it was good. Um, it was a pretty good thing to have at the time. Um, but yeah, I was familiar enough with the city to know that that was a place where I just saw a lot of opportunity. What were some of the internships you had while you were in school? Did you have any? Zero. Really? You were just like full on, full focus. Did, were you working? Oh yeah. From day one. 
Yeah. Where were you working in the city? So because I knew someone in my town who knew another person, I like, I really clung to this one very thin connection at a restaurant called, um, that's still there, uh, Cafe Fiorello's across from Lincoln Center. It's this really like old school um, Shelly Fireman restaurant that has like a few others, but um, Fiorello's is like one of these just New York kind of staples at this point for a certain crew. It's like a lot of TV, like newscasters go in there and, you know, Barbara Walters has lunch there. It's very like TV oriented for whatever reason. Um, but so I worked there for a while. Um, I started in the basement answering phones as a reservationist. Oh, wow. They actually had a basement where you were like down there answering phones. Yeah. Um, a very steep ladder to get down there. Oh God. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was a little creepy. I was down there with the chef and some other managers and yeah, I would just answer the phones and they would like throw me down a free meal every once in a while. And, um, it was fun. And then I, uh, worked my way up to the coat check <laughs> and then, you know, so now I was on ground level, which was nice. a big, that's uh, a big step up big <laughs> from the literal figure. Yeah. figured figure uh, step up. And then, um, I became the hostess. And then I became, you know, a proper waiter, which at that place, you had to really know your stuff. Um, Lots of tests. They would give you all these tests. Uh, But yeah, so I was 18. You know, they were definitely like, I'm sorry, you're who from where? Um, You think you're going to work in this like crazy high paced, like super demanding crowd, like restaurant. And, you know, after a long time (laughs) proving myself, they let me. Finally. Um, and then, yeah, from there, I would say I worked at like just about every bar in New York city. And I, for whatever reason, had an affinity for like hotel bars, but yeah. So I worked all through college. It, you know, I, I, I worked all through high school pretty much. Yeah. So I never really knew, you know, it's like in high school, I didn't have, you know, if I wanted like school clothes, I would have to work and earn the money to buy the clothes. Yeah. I imagine you're probably also paying some of your tuition maybe, or even just your rent to be in New York with your salary. Yeah. I had a really awesome one bedroom apartment that I shared with two, uh, uh, two girls who are now still to this day, my, my besties, but yeah, we would rotate between, um, one mattress, one bed and a couch. (laughs) And so we would literally just like, wow, three people. So two people in the bed, one on the couch, just like rotate all in one room. Yeah. I think we're all, we were all like legally married at some point, just by nature, the fact that we lived together for like 10 years. That's hilarious. I definitely lived in a one bedroom with a friend who was sleeping on the couch in the kitchen, (laughs) renting out the room. And she was definitely overcharging me so that she could pay a lot less, which I understood, you know, if you're sleeping on a tiny couch with a kitchen right in front of you, it's a little (laughs) tight squeeze, you know? Yeah. It's amazing what you can put up with, uh, at a certain age. <laughs> yes. You just don't care. You're like, you don't care. Fine. Yeah. yeah. If you have to come into my bedroom to use the only bathroom in the apartment, it's fine. Like this. Did we also live in the same, ba- the <laughs> same apartment? <laughs> there was a futon in the kitchen. Yes. You had to walk past it yep. to get to the bathroom. Yeah. It's yeah. Gross. You have to open the bedroom door to get into the bedroom to then open the door for the bathroom. So it was like, you know, just no, Lots of, (laughs) lots of chambers. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. 
Have you ever experienced lost sales due to downtime caused by a corrupt CSV, malicious attack, or rogue third-party app? Even if it hasn't happened yet, it doesn't mean that it won't happen. That's why brands like Pier 1 Import, Lord & Taylor, Hasbro, and Staples use Rewind to keep their store protected. Rewind gives you peace of mind, protects your data, and saves you time and money by easily restoring your data, automatically backing up and keeping a record of every change you make. Get a 30-day free trial with Rewind today by going to rewind.io slash stairway to CEO. That's R-E-W-I-N-D dot I-O slash stairway to CEO. Spring is in the air, which means summer will be here in no time. But is your patio or backyard ready for action? With Outer, you can get your outdoor space decked out with the best looking sustainable sofas, chairs, coffee tables, eco-friendly rugs, and don't forget their celebrity favorite, bug shield blanket to keep those mosquitoes away. Want to check it out for yourself? Browse over a thousand outer customers' backyards online and visit a neighborhood showroom in your own neighborhood to experience outer products in person before you decide to buy. And when you decide to buy, you can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture purchases with the promo code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. I have a quote and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. The gorgeous platform allows our agents a seamless place to just do it all. We are really there for the customer every step of the way if they want. Our customers expect quality and efficiency where they are. So the real question is, how do you get quality and efficiency across every single platform? And then once you have it, how do you maintain it? And I believe that with the Gorgeous platform, we can do that. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So what, what happened after college? I know you started one of my favorite companies, Blueprint Cleanse. Can you talk about kind of how you got the idea for that and how that got started? I think it was pretty much the seed was planted in during college when um, I was dating a, um, I call him my hippie ex-boyfriend, who I'm still friendly with today. I love him. But he, you know, he was a... Uh, you know, beautiful California boy was like super into raw foods. And I was like, what's raw foods? I didn't understand what he was talking about, but I was fascinated and obsessed because I was probably obsessed with him. You know, I kind of just listened to everything he had to say. And and he was super sort of self-educated on the subject and really passionate about it. And it really, you know, it rubbed off on me. And I eventually went from, you know, carnivore to like raw foodist overnight which was, you know, a bit extreme back in the day. I mean, that's during a time when a, no one, like if you were a vegetarian, you were kind of a freak at that point. Right. These are early days. This is like 2005 or six, right? Oh, this is before that. This is when I was a rough, it was like five years earlier. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So this is when I had my, yeah. This is when I was in my early millennium, my, the early aughts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is when I was introduced to raw foods and I became a raw foodist. I was like, 
but yeah, and it always kind of stuck with me. And I, um, you know, over the years would, you know, continue to go to school, you know, bartend, sort of work my way through whatever the city and was practicing this thing called raw foodism. And so it was like, basically you don't totally vegan. You don't really eat anything cooked. Everything is like sprouted or dehydrated. And it's very complicated and very annoying to a lot of people to even hear, hear the details, especially at that time. But there was, uh, there was always this like very aggressive fascination around it. Because I think, you know, at at a certain point, I was probably a little bit, a little bit preachy about it because it felt amazing. And I was like, oh my God, I read like all these books about it. And it was incredible that like food could be medicine. Like everyone, listen, this is insane. This is such an absurd idea, but I promise it works. I mean, it was truly just like people did not want to hear it, um, but they did. And they were very curious. Um, And so, you know, a few years went by and I was still kind of like in this world and it was a very small world at the time in New York city. There was maybe two, one dedicated raw food restaurant called quintessence. that's not there anymore, but it was in the East village. I know that place. I know that place. That place was really good. It was great. And I would go there every day by myself. Um, It was like their most loyal customer. No one, no, they had just me and all the other weird raw food. It's just like at our solo tables because nobody wanted to go eat raw food for a lot of money. And so, right. It was expensive. It was super expensive. Um, So I'd be like bartending at night and like drinking and partying with friends. But also I had this way of living that kind of countered that or in my mind balanced it. it. I felt incredible. You know, I, I, I kind of just eventually got a little bit further down the path and I found myself often, like even at my, you know, bartending jobs or wherever I was working, I was always walking around with like some kind of weird, like crunchy hippie snack or something. And like a bag with like no label and, you know, unbranded, uh, whatever. So how did Uh, juice come into the picture? (laughs) You're talking about all the raw food, but how did you get to the cold pressed juice? Well, they do a lot of, they do a lot of juicing. So I went to this place in Puerto Rico called the Ann Wigmore Institute. And I went for, you know, 17 days, I think. And it's basically a, a place where people go. I did not realize at the time um, who are for the most part terminal or struggling with very serious illness, um, which I was not, I was just like in my early twenties. And I was like, I love rough food and juicing and I want to have a bit of a detox and I want to learn more. And it was a lot of educating that happened there. And I didn't know the state of, like that people were in. I arrived and there were maybe 20 of us and I was literally me and one other person who he just had high blood pressure and was overweight. Literally everyone else was terminal and they had to actually send one kid back because he didn't, he had a, he was like, wow, sad story. Very young kid, but he was like, had to take like part of his colon out. And they were like, we literally can't help you. So I guess my point is it was very striking that this thing that I had been practicing very casually in the city and, and made me feel great. And I felt like I grasped the sort of power of it was something that people who were terminal were looking to do uh, as a last ditch effort. And I just thought there was a big gap. I mean, that just seemed so incredibly wrong. You know, it was kind of like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why did I have to, you know, come to an island to do this thing? Like, why isn't it more readily available for me 
uh, living the type of lifestyle that I'm living in New York City, right? Where we're supposed to have access to so many things. And why is it that for all these people who are struggling with these very serious health issues, like, A, why haven't they, like, why don't they know about this? Like, why don't they know to use this or incorporate it into their daily lives as a tool in a more preventative way? And why, why do they have to get to this point where they're now using it to save their lives? Like they've probably tried everything, you know, and they're probably at the point where they've thrown their hands up. They've like done all the meds, whatever it is. And it's just like, oh, this is a very, you know, and so the answer, I mean, the problem was very real to me. It was like, oh, okay, this is like, this is sad. You know, this is a very sad state, but I get it, you know, in my own, own personal experience, having, you know, however many years of sort of living this way and having people look at me like, that is just like, I'm not eating that. It smells funny. It looks funny. It's weird. It's not pleasurable. It's too extreme. It's very dogmatic. It's like all the things. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? You're right. This is why people don't do it. Cause it's just like, it's not presented in a proper way. So I think that was the sort of like connective tissue where it was like, okay, here's the very clear problem. It's obviously health. There's nothing preventative about it. If we focus on, you know, what we now call plant-based, like, it's just like, so funny. That's what it was. Right. I say raw food, but it's plant-based. If we focus on that, if we figure out how to incorporate it on a regular basis, if we package it up in a way that is like beautiful and sleek and, and people are like proud to carry it around like a iPhone or back in the day, like a cup of Starbucks, you know, totally. I, mean, I, I was literally going to say that <laughs> like yeah. back in the day carrying Starbucks was like iconic, yeah, this iconic, <laughs> like yeah, status, status symbol. Yeah. And so it was like, how can we like, you know, how, how can we take this concept you know, and even when I was in, at the Anne Rigmore Institute, like I found myself getting irritated by how extreme it was. And I understand it was extreme because people were going there because they were in an extreme situation. I was not. So, you know, I got back to the city and I, I, I really felt like, okay, I need to, I need to figure out how to, how to put these two things together. Um, I've had enough of like my friends asking me, like, what is it that you're doing? Like, how do you do it? Blah, blah, blah. And, and so, you know, I, I, did a lot of self-educating. I got some weird lackey degrees, like a, you know, certified, you know, nutrition, like nutritional consultant, I think was this sort of BS title. And, you know, I, I started thinking about what the program would look like and that was a juice cleanse. Right. So I wanted it to be sort of like a, a re, you know, not like a full on rehab or detox, but something that people could do intermittently. Right. So it was like, you could do one day. We had like a one day fast, a three day fast or cleanse five days. And, you know, just sort of like pick your poison. You don't have to be all in. You can sort of dip in a toe and see if it, if you feel differently, you know, whatever. So I wanted to give people an option and not, you know, the biggest thing was not have it be extreme. So at the time, Again, there weren't many outlets for, uh, there weren't many restaurants or places to go to actually produce, but I did know <clears throat> one name, uh, a person who I will not name, um, but a, uh, a plant-based gentleman at the time, who's <laughs> still in that world. And he had, a, he had a facility in Brooklyn and in the city. And he was just starting and I was like, oh my God, this is a person I can partner with. He's like going down this path that I'm like, you know, like young in school, whatever. And literally wrote him a hand, you know, handwritten note, had sort of like drafted my little business plan, did my little Excel thing, my projections for my cleanse program, wrote him a letter. And I said, do you want to, you know, do you want to partner up? And we met and he was just like, oh, you're cute. Like, you know, I, I'm kind of like busy, but like, feel free to go use my, my kitchen. And, 
and my staff and really so he was like <laughs> swear to god i feel like you're harmless so just yeah. like use my resources if you want but i don't want to partner with you well it was sort of like sure like let me know how it goes but like i'm not you know gonna until it that. becomes something then i'll get yeah. interested yeah right and so i did and i went in i was like okay i'm gonna find my little test group and i'm gonna make this product and, and they're going to take it and let's see how we do and i, I honestly couldn't believe that i was allowed access to just sort of like, it literally just walked into a kitchen after writing, you know, a letter and putting it in the mailbox. It was like, okay, go ahead. (laughs) I was like, and so that was a very like fast track in, in understanding that this actually had legs and how to do it. And like, you know, I mean, literally from the ground up and then, um, so basically I found this group of women in Connecticut in Darien, Connecticut, which if you're not familiar with Darien, Connecticut. No, I'm not. Very, so it's like Dar- it's like Greenwich, Connecticut. It's a right. very, very wealthy town right, right outside of the city. And um, this place that I was working out of had an outpost up there. And so there was a little bit of familiarity. There's There are two women who were sort of like spearheading the, the, the plant-based movement up there. And we got, got in contact. We were put in contact and um, I said, Hey, do you want to try this cleanse? Sure. We're going to rally up like a group of ladies and they did. And so I would like produce it in the kitchen, you know, using a very generic juicer, package it up, drive it up. They would pay. They were just coming back every week. And I was like, Oh, wow. Okay. This is like totally got legs. And then, you know, the place I was producing out of promptly went out of business because they were very generous with their space, but not obviously very good business people. I know you've, you spent like eight years there and we have, we only have a few more minutes left. I want to make sure we get to the story of earth and star. Can you kind of go through just like fast forward eight years, looking back, what were some takeaways that you had in building that brand and how did things end? And then how did you transition into, you know, starting earth and star? The juice business, basically we built it. So I teamed up with Erica, my partner, when, when I lost that kitchen space, her husband at the time actually had a catering kitchen. We moved in there. We officially part- partnered up. Uh, we bootstrapped it for five years. We grew it into a national brand. We pivoted into retail. We never raised any money. And then, you know, after five years, growing it pretty dramatically and creating a category and sort of spearheading the whole HPP thing, which, sorry, everybody, I didn't mean to do that. We sold it to Haynes Celestial which is a big sort of natural conglomerate that, you know, you would know a lot of the brand names that they have under their portfolio, but we were acquired by them. Very interesting journey. Uh, We weren't necessarily seeking out um, an acquisition, but it just so happened to end up that way. We had a few different potential uh, structures on the table. Like maybe we were going to raise money. We were talking to Pepsi. We were maybe going to do a deal with Starbucks and, they wanted to acquire us. So yeah, at the end of the day, we ended up going with Hain Celestial and stayed on for a couple, almost a couple of years. We almost made it in a corporate environment for <laughs> two years. A couple of years. I'd say you did quite well making it for uh, a little Six bit months. of time. Um, oh. Yeah. So we left, um, we left in 2014 um, and we're very good work wives. I mean, we've known each other, um, Erica and I now for, I don't know, 20 years, which is insane because- I'm not that old. I mean, you know, it's all relative. But um, <laughs> I say the same thing about myself. I'm like, I'm not that old. Well, I guess if I talk to an 18 year old, they're like, you're old. You're old. <laughs> um, but it's fine. Uh, and so we've, um, you know, we 
we did a little bit of a victory lap after we, we left Hayen. Um, I had a couple of kids. We both kind of went our separate ways and I mean, still very connected and very much, um, friends. We did both did some investing, um, some consulting and, you know, we, we felt like we still had some unfinished business to do in this, you know, at the time, very rapidly evolving wellness space. And so we thought, how can we, you know, how can we team up again? And like, what should we work on? And we didn't really want to force anything just to just, you know, for the sake of getting back in it. Um, so we started a podcast like people do, um, a few, a few, a few I got, years ago. You know, it's funny. I started my podcast when my company got acquired too. So <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Well, it was a nice way, you know, to a few years ago, you know, just stay relevant, stay in the conversation. Um, it was a good excuse to reach out to a lot of entrepreneurs and, um, experts who were doing cool things in the wellness space. So we did that. And one day we were just kind of hanging around my kitchen, looking at my like 10 deep supplement cabinet, which is just, it looks like I have a pharmacy. Um, and we were talking about functional mushrooms and sort of, um, comparing notes on how insanely effective they were and how I didn't fully realize how effective they were until I stopped taking them, you know, for a few weeks. And I was like, Oh my God, they really do, uh, a lot for me. And so she had a similar experience and we were taking them for two different reasons. Um, but we kind of looked around and we're like, wait a minute, this is the brand that we're both taking. Like it's good, but it's like, it's not amazing. I mean, they've done a good job, like sort of creating it for the most part, I would say creating the category, at least here. Um, and it was just another one of these moments where it's just like, whoa, this is a huge kingdom that holds a lot of potential. Like we, this is sort of like, we just shifted from the plant kingdom to the, this is a fungi kingdom. And it was like, good Lord. It's kind of like one of those things, the moment you start looking into it and you start reading up on, on functional mushrooms and adaptogens and nootropics, and all, it's just like absolutely mind blowing again, how simple it is, but how powerful it is medicinally. And so you know, we just kind of looked at each other and that like, let's do just like a little surveying of the scene here in the landscape to see what, you know, what's out, what, truly what brands are out there, what they're doing, what's the format and uh, potentially is there like a place for us to enter and improve upon what's already here. And so the answer was like, yes, yes, yes. And yes. You know, it was like everything that exists right now is in a powder or pill form. There's not a lot of transparency. People don't don't really understand what it is they're consuming. It's a very confusing space. It's a very confusing subject. It's often overly sciencey. Um, the branding is not awesome. It's just like there are a lot of a lot of problems. Like the form, you know, the form factor is not great. Like why can't this exist in like a more convenient and delicious way? We had sort of asked enough questions to say like, okay, we need we actually could do some stuff here. Like this is kind of exciting. Um, and so coming from beverage, you know, and that being our sort of heritage, we thought like, okay, well, there's some true white space here. Nobody's doing a ready to drink beverage format. So why don't we, why don't we enter with beverage, which we did in which, which ones did you launch with? So we launched with a line of, um, ready to drink lattes. Um, so four different, uh, flavors, including a cold brew, um, black coffee. Yes. So the matcha, I have them with me right now. I've got the matcha, the turmeric one, the cacao oat milk, literally like chocolate milk, code name for chocolate milk. Exactly. It's um, like grown up chocolate milk. Yeah, exactly. 
healthy chocolate milk. And then, yeah, the cold brew is really good. Strong. So you got to put some oat milk in that, but it's really good. Yeah. So we wanted to, to take sort of the everyday products that people use, like coffee, chocolate, you know, whatever, all the habitual products and make them super clean, super premium, very delicious, very consumer friendly and in beautiful packaging, and then just boost everything and infuse everything with functional mushrooms. So, you know, in order to not get sort of like pigeonholed into being a beverage brand again, we very quickly, you know, had a bunch of verticals and fast follows to sort of more broadly establish ourselves as a mushroom platform, um, which is Earth and Star. So I'm, you know, still learning about adaptogens and I'm looking here at this, um, the cacao oat milk, which is really good. I'm just been sipping on it while we're talking. And the first thing, thing it says is lion's mane. And it makes me think that people are going out and shaving off a lion's hair and doing something with it. Tell me that's not happening. What the hell is lion's mane? It's like lock of hair from a child. Um, right? Yeah, honestly. It does sound a little. It does sound like a little. Leave the lions alone, you know. <laughs> and the dogs. Um, it's uh, It does sound a little witchy. Um, but no, lion's mane, is, is, it has its name because this act, the mushroom looks like a shaggy white mane of a lion as is naturally found in nature. And so, yeah, so we've got um, the same blend of four different mushrooms across, for the most part, all of our skews. So it's lion's mane, reishi, chaga, and um, cordyceps. And so they all have different functions that we think pretty specifically check boxes for the average Joe. So, you know, lion's mane is great for cognitive function, memory, creativity. It's tons of clinical studies on this stuff. I mean, the science is all there, which is even. What is some of the science? What does it say? Like, what's the percentage of increase? I mean, there's so much white paper. Actually, if you go on our, star, on our website, Earth and Star, we have tons and tons and tons of clinical studies that you could read through. But um, yeah, but Lion's Mane has actually been, you know, it's been shown to ward off dementia in some studies. I mean, it's just, it's sort of like, creating new neuropath. I mean, it's just the, the power of it is, is pretty mind blowing, no pun intended. Um, and then you've got Rishi, which is known a little bit more for being, you know, it's sort of calming effects, chill. Uh, cordyceps is known um, to sort of like boost oxygen uptake. So it's really great for like stamina and energy and all those good things. And, you know, Chaga is, is kind of like the most immune sort of supporting functional mushroom out there. It's got, I mean, just a powerhouse of like antioxidants, like a thousand times more than like pomegranates and blueberries combined. So what about like elderberry? Cause everybody's, you know, Oh, uh, elderberry like, syrup. No, no, no. Blows it all out of the water. Really? Out if of the you're water. starting to feel sick, then that's actually a mushroom. This mushroom is actually the best thing to have. Well, it's interesting that you say that. And I, I don't want to get into too much science because I know we don't have too much time, but I will say this is one of the tricky things, right? And I think this is what we're trying to educate around in a way that's hopefully easy to understand. But functional mushrooms, adaptogens, you know, they're always trying to bring you into balance. They're trying to sort of like, you know, find that homeostasis. And, you know, so it's not like chaga is immune booster, right? because you don't always want to boost your immune system. Some people need to calm their immune system down and it's actually overactive and that's the problem. So to say like, you know, when I see some of the language that mushroom brands use, sometimes it drives me crazy because it's like, no, it's not like immune boosting, blah, blah, blah. It's modulating it, right? It's bringing you into balance. 
And that's the magic of adaptogens is like, it's adapt, it's taking you and your specific needs and adapting you to bring you back to center. So chaga is one of those examples. Um, but yes, you should, you should be taking them as a preventative. Like they should just be consumed as a, like you take a multivitamin. It's all preventative. That's awesome. And so when did you guys launch the business? Are you guys bootstrapped? Did you fundraise? We are in the process of fundraising right now. You know, as luck would have it, we kind of launched during COVID. <laughs> it's funny, it's lucky and it's unlucky because it's like, obviously COVID. And then, you know, the the interesting part about it is that we're presenting a product that is <laughs> so powerful when it comes to health and specifically your immune system um, during a time when everyone needs that more than ever. So um, we launched uh, a little bit more officially and we say 2021. And um, we are actually, uh, we've bootstrapped up until now. We just started our seed round. We're just about to close it if anybody wants to jump in. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's exciting. It's been a, it's been a whole process of what do you mean anybody wants to jump in? Are you fundraising on Republic or something where it's actually like a public platform? No, no crowd, no crowd, no crowdfunding. No, just individuals. If there are any, uh, you know, investors. angels out there, yeah, yeah, investors, in. you know, um, reach out. It's a good, uh, it's a good category. It's going to be pretty big. Yeah. The Westerners are a little bit slow on the mushroom, uh, the mushroom piece, but it's, it's pretty explosive right now. So it's exciting. That's awesome. Yeah. And so go to market strategy. I know it was like uh, COVID and stuff when you launched, but what were some things that you did a little different to help launch the brand? It's interesting. I think because we started with a product, the line of ready to drink lattes, because we started with that, we were kind of forced to start, you know, to really focus on retail, which was not obviously conducive to, um, you know, COVID environment. Um, there was no retail at the time. I think that we've just had to be very nimble and very flexible over the past 12 months to react to this like constantly changing environment. You know, I think in some ways, I think this business will end up looking quite different from, you know, how we started, which is not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just sort of being an entrepreneur, right? It's like, you've got this business idea starts as one idea. And then it usually evolves into something else based on the circumstances. And you kind of have to just figure out how to navigate and not be afraid to change up your strategy or your offerings, um, which we've definitely rolled out a lot very quickly. Yeah, definitely. What are some um, key learnings you could share, I guess, with your experience in building your previous business and now this one to entrepreneurs kind of tuning in? What advice do you have? I think the advice would be honestly just to continue off that point is that just because you have a great idea in the beginning, doesn't mean it's going to be the one that you're going to end up with, you know? And I, it's funny because that nobody wants to hear like, not all do not all ideas are great ones, but it's true. And it's not that they're not great, but like, you know, sometimes the original idea is not like the final thing. And so even with blueprint, right? Like we started with a, you know, it was a cleanse, it was a detox program, essentially. And it evolves in a very positive way. And you have to just let things unfold and you have to follow, you know, where that need is and follow the pull and don't, you know, if you feel, feel like you're constantly pushing something, then there's probably, you know, you're not, you're either not listening to, to the market or, you know, you're maybe being a bit stubborn about your original baby. So with Blueprint, it evolved from a direct to consumer 
cleanse package, right. That you had to order like a day's worth. And then it evolved into being a straight up juice company. That was a grab and go sitting next to Odwalla on the shelf, um, at retail across, you know, the, the country. So it's just, it was a very different, the model evolved very, very quickly. I loved how you guys had the, um, I mean, you made a, doing a juice cleanse super easy. Cause it was like the bottles even had a number on it, I think. And the blue caps. And it was like one, two, three, take, this is the order you take your drinks for your cleanse. And it's like, okay, I can do a cleanse now. Right. Like you don't have to think about it. You just do what it tells you to do. Yes. Yeah. That was my, that was the original tagline. We think you drink. <laughs> Like, just don't, just don't think about anything. Just let us do it. Just open your mouth and drink the things. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that the advice would just be, you know, like, don't be afraid to don't think you have it all figured out, like out of the gate. And so you've been fundraising. I know you said you're going to be closing your round soon. What are some challenges that you've faced in fundraising? Cause I don't think you didn't raise before, right? So this is, is this your first time fundraising? It is. It's our first fundraising rodeo. And my goodness, isn't it a soul destroying experience? Um, <laughs> it is. It literally is. Listen, yeah. Here's the saddest stat you've ever heard. What percentage of VC money goes to female? Oh, I already know this under 2%. I know you do. And I'm part under. of that 2% somehow. God damn. It's yeah. so, it's just, and I think it's even less. So I, it is just, yes, that is the number that I've been, that I have working in the forefront of my brain. And it is a very just discouraging, it's a, it's honestly, the fundraising experience has been just quite demoralizing. And so, especially when you have, well, I guess the, the, it's very hard, right? So it's even hard for someone like myself, who's got a successful business under her belt. And like, you know, it's, it's everyone says even along the way. So everyone who passes says, oh, but you'll have no problem raising money because you've got this proven track record and you've done it before. And so. Um, well, it's just not the case. And I will say that, you know, without sounding like a crazy, angry white female, like there are a lot of similar brands who have closed their seed round in warp speed, who are doing very similar things to us who started at pretty much the same time. So I just, I'll say that the fundraising experience and you're saying because they're led by men, it happened quicker or because, is that what you're saying? Oh, I would never say such a thing. <laughs> I'm just implying it. No, I'm you're just implying <laughs> I would never. You're suggesting. That would, sound, that would make me sound just so jaded and angry. Well, listen, no. I mean, it's kind of true though, because like, I honestly believe, unfortunately, the fact is either it's because maybe the company you had before didn't have venture funding and so you didn't have relationships maybe before. And, but the yeah, we had kind of so support. many relationships. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know what I just we said. We did. I'm just saying no, like, we did. Here's thing. why. We did because once we were sort of put into play, so with Blueprint, we were never seeking capital. We had, we were very cash positive, bootstrapped it. It was, everything was fine. We didn't need to raise money. We were put into play by Starbucks. So like Howard Schultz called one day and said like, hey, love what you built. I'm looking for a juice company to acquire. And so I was like, we're like, oh shit. Now I guess we know who the competition is. And now we have to, so after that courtship and we passed on their offer, we were forced to kind of go out and have all of these conversations with all of these potential partners. So we do have a strong network of venture capital at this point. Um, 
which is not really great for a seed round, but, um, right. It's a little later stage, right? It's later stage. And, um, but it's fine. You know, it's, uh, I, I guess the point is, is I, I did not think raising money would be quite this difficult. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not easy. Fundraising is definitely not easy. What are, what's some of the, I guess, things that you've had to overcome? Like, what are they saying or what are the naysayers saying? Of course you've had some wins, you know, you've got some support, but I'm wondering, like, there's always no's. There's probably been lots of no's. I've had lots of no's. What are they saying no to? Everybody wants something to be proven out before they, they get involved because they don't want to take a risk. Right. Which is very upsetting when you're like, well, wait a minute. Once I have all this traction and I've proven this out to the extent that like, you know, the valuation is going to be so much higher, like what, you know, I really want someone to take a risk with me. Like that's kind of the whole point. So usually it's just like, it's too early. Show me like a year of data, you know, show me a year of sales before like we have a conversation, which is fair. I mean, like if you're an investor, it's totally up to you to say like, this is the, the level of risk that we take. And we're not going to jump in until it's proven. Um, but it's it's all very circular, right? It's all very chicken and egg, which makes it so frustrating. It's like, well, it's hard to prove it out if I don't have the budget to work with to build the sales that you're looking for. So it's just this really horrible cycle that makes me want to kind of pull my eyelashes out. All right. <laughs> I totally hear you. They're like, come, don't, don't go too far away. You know, keep in touch with us. Let us keep us posted on your progress just in case you have a lot of success and we need to really jump into that round. I don't want to be, yeah, it's hilarious. It is. What's really funny too, is when angels are like, oh yeah, come and prove it. And you're like, you're an angel. You're supposed to be taking the risk. Like what is wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's been a tough uh, process, but hopefully we're almost done with the first rodeo here. Yeah. Well, best of luck to getting that round closed and finally moving on to the, you know, actually running the business. Cause I know fundraising takes a lot of time. So it's much funny. time. Yeah. Yes. Lots of courting and time spent, um, getting documents and all the fun stuff. Um, it's a lot of pitching. Yeah. Which you get better at, right? With each one. I'm sure you were like, huh, I'm going to say this next time that worked. And now you say that one again and that worked too. And don't say this. (laughs) (laughs) I know we really should have been like recording the, we should have recorded our first like 10 pitches and like against the the most recent because it's. (laughs) Right. It looks like a very different business probably too. Um, but Night yeah, and day. I know. And unfortunately the only way to get better is to practice. And unfortunately that means like with those first few investor pitches that they just don't go as well as the others, but it's all good. So, you know, starting and growing a business, uh, definitely involves a lot of personal and professional growth. How have you grown personally as a leader? I think, you know, personally, I I think I have learned, especially in this fundraising process, not to take things so personally. (laughs) Personally, that's what I've learned, um, is not to take things personally. Uh, I think, yes, it's, it is a, uh, it's a difficult thing to do. I thought I was doing a good job at it before. And then the fundraising um, process has definitely required a much thicker skin it's just at the end of the day, it's a lot of rejection, right? It's, you know, probably the same reason that I would make a really shit actress because I c- could not handle that process of just being rejected every, every day at auditions. But um, has an investor ever said something like that you kind of took you back and you're like, I can't believe you just said that. That's kind of fucked up. 
Oh yeah, I've had an investor sale and never invest in women again. Oh, like they're still out there. I thought it's like 2022 and that's like canceled. Can't we cancel this person? A huge, huge fund, by the way. <laughs> Can we blast them right now? Um, I want you so bad. <laughs> no, but he was talking about, uh, he was talking about so huge portfolio, apparently 99.99% men run businesses, except for one that he invested in, it was two women. And I think he was in with them for about a year or so. By the time we had this conversation, we were pitching him and he was like, after we spent like an hour or so pitching, he's like, eh, I'll never invest in female founders again. You know what? It's just too much drama. I was like, Oh man, I cannot believe you just said that. That oh, was incredible. You got to record all your meetings, you know, and just like get those sound bits and just publish them on social media. Right now, no <laughs> investor is going to call me after this interview. They're going to be like, oh, no, no wears, they just don't. Where's a wire? No, I'll, I will do that. So maybe, hey, investor, like, don't go into a meeting with me. I might be wearing a wire. No, <laughs> I had someone like, tell me that they don't recording. invest in married people. That's I had an investor tell me that once. Oh, like, I don't invest. People. Well, which actually means married woman because there was, was many say. married men in his portfolio, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't, you know, and then uh, like people who have children, keep that a secret. Keep that info under your hat. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I thank I God definitely... for Zoom when you're Prager. You know, you can just hide that shit. No one has to know. <laughs> Exactly. Um, except when they come running into your office uh, in front of the screen. <laughs> right. You're like, I'm babysitting. It's my side gig. Right. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah. I've had some crazy things said for sure. Yeah. Wow. I, I actually was hoping that wasn't true because I was hoping those days were over because I, you know, was fundraising back in like 2000, I guess, 18, 17. So that's when it was, it was before the Me Too stuff. So yes. it was in, in his defense. He wasn't quite woke enough yet to not know that you this can't was say pre that. me too. Yeah. Oh, see, I thought you meant this round that you were fundraising. No, 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 no. This is blueprint when, uh, when we were sort of having all these conversations, oh, but that no, sense. yeah. Back in the yeah, day, it was crazy. Oh, but, yeah. but nowadays, how is it out there? Um, it's very contradictory, right? It's like all these people after COVID saying like, we've got all this money, we need to put it somewhere. So it's like, there's all this activity and like the VCs, like in fundraising space. And then you have these, and then it's just sort of like, no, I'm, it's just a lot of excuses, honestly. I want to say that people are being more cautious now, but they're just not. It's actually, it feels like there is in fact a lot of money floating around and it's, it's all up for grabs. Fundraising. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of taken aback often by like how people or brands tend to tout this sort of like women, woman owned operated um, badge and how there is like a certain amount of money that will go towards, um, like, you know, women, female run startups, whatever. I don't necessarily see that in practice, right? Like in, in real life, I don't see people reaching for a bottle of this juice over that juice because it says women owned. I don't honestly think that anyone cares. I mean, and I, that sounds so sad, <laughs> that sounds so sad but it's just like, what, you know, I look at branding so often and I'm just like, why are, like, why are we putting this on here? And even for myself, I have to question it. I'm like, do I think this is going to sway a buyer? Do I think, you know, it's certainly not giving me some kind of special, you know, financial grant, but like, it just feels like a somewhat false, you know, facade. It just feels false to me, but, um, and kind of sad. (laughs) 
you're saying with the funds though, too, that are focused on women, it's like, you're not really seeing a lot of activity. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I've like, we've had so many conversations with funds where it was just like, we really want to focus on, you know, it's either like one of two things we really want to focus on, you know, um, brands that are doing things for the environment or plant-based and are women owned, right? These are like the three buckets that we often, I've often heard. Everyone's like making that their focus, like support female founders, focus on, you know, companies that are improving sort of like the food, you know, our food system or our environment, whatever. It's like, they're all very crunchy and, and smiley and happy. And then I just don't see it in practice. I'm like, it's funny. Cause I look at your portfolio <laughs> and it's all just like tech companies, like, you know, it's like a bunch of white dudes, like what? They're like, no, but actually we make like maybe one deal every other year for consumer brands. You know, like that's the other thing I would ask these funds is when they're like, yeah, we invest in consumer. You're like, really? Okay. Well, how, what percentage of your portfolio is consumer and brands, not just consumer tech? Yes. Yeah. That is off. It's very, it's They'll be like, yes. oh yeah, we invest like 0.01% in consumer brands. You're like, oh, thank you for saving my time. Now next, you know? <laughs> Exactly. No, I mean, that happens. It's happened so many times. I can't even tell you. Yeah. It's frustrating. It's a, it's, it's a big time suck for sure. Not the best process. Although made easier, I will say by zoom, because I can't imagine going like all the meetings that we've had, having to like go to an office just to hear like, Oh, keep us posted on your progress. Yeah. <laughs> let, us, let us know how we can help. Right. It's like, cool. yeah, I will let you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Oh man. Um, what's something you wish you would have known before you started your business? I know you're early in and you're a seasoned entrepreneur, but what's something you wish you would have known before getting into uh, and starting earth and star? I think I wish I would have admitted to myself or maybe known. I say admitted because I think there's like a little bit, (laughs) maybe turning a blind eye, but, um, I wish I would have had a, you know, and this is just totally transparent. Like I, like I, I wish I would have known or realized or admitted to myself or whatever it is that the functional beverage space and the beverage space in general is just beyond crowded and somewhat impenetrable. It's not 2012 anymore, right? Like we were category created, like we, we pioneered something that created a whole, you know, cold pressed juice category that sparked so, you know, a whole new cooler set. I mean, the beverage, the cooler then and the cooler now is just daunting. You know, we're, we're in like all the Erewhon's and everything else. And we went out there and it was supposed to be this like exciting moment of like, oh, we're in all the Erewhon's. And I just looked at this in person, right? Cause it was, we, ha- we haven't seen much of anything in real life in so long. And we went to the store and we saw in front of our faces and it was just like, oh my God. <laughs> Like, wait, where are we? I don't see us. Where are we? <laughs> a, literally, it yeah. was like a little like dinghy in this vast ocean. And it was this like tidal wave of functionality. And I'm like, how unbelievably confusing is this for a consumer? Like, where do they even start between the amount of, you know, hard kombucha or whatever it is, and like CBD and the bubbly waters and the every, I mean, literally, it's just like, it's truly exploded. And I, I don't think I, I uh, would have been so gung-ho to enter through, enter the, the, the mushroom space through beverage had I fully realized the, the, how daunting 
that cooler is and how, how many, how many brands are out there and not just in the functional space, but like just beverages. Yeah. I can see that as a, you know, founder with a beverage brand seeing that is like, Oh boy. But you know, I feel that is such a beautiful, it's a lot for a consumer too, but it is a beautiful, like you can tell something's happening in beverage. Like the branding is beautiful. There's so many unique things happening. It's, it's a really cool aisle. I actually always enjoy going to in that stores. I, I love seeing all the new, you know, products they do. Obviously everyone does an incredible curation job of always finding the best brands and bringing them in. It's a great place for discovery. And I actually think though, with your oat milk drinks that there's not many that are doing that. You know, because like you said, it's like kombucha and it's like fizzy, this and that, you know, right? So I feel like you guys have something going on at least with what you what you're offering. Yeah, I think we are, I think we were probably the first to do at least to do a plant-based, like functional mushroom only, you know, focused, ready to drink. <clears throat> so and now, you know, there's already a, a handful hopping in. So I don't know. I mean, it all feels very unpredictable. I think. Maybe it would have changed things had I had I known what that feeling would be. Um, maybe it wouldn't. Maybe I'm just a total masochist and <laughs> can't stay away from beverage. But right. Well, you went with something you knew from you know having built Blueprint. So I feel like that's what every, everybody would do. And now, but now you have awesome brand, uh, other products as well. The coffee is great. You've got these cool chocolates. The dark chocolates are good. I was having the coffee one this morning, and the mint is really good. So you guys have some other really cool um, adaptogen infused, I guess, you know, products that are, that are great. Yeah. We're coming out with another one this week, uh, this week, actually. Yeah. So tell me before we um, call it a day here, what is next for earth and star? I mean, right now we're trying to just establish ourselves as the, you know, the functional mushroom brand that you think of when you want to try it, when you want a ritual, when you want to dive in and, and make it your daily habit, we have sort of an offering for you. If you're not into beverage, then you can have a chocolate every day. If you're not into having chocolate every day, then you can have a tincture. If you're not into a tincture, you can have ground coffee, like whatever, however you want to do it. It's, we have something for everyone. Um, and then we're coming out with, um, with, gummies so functional mushroom gummies and so a very therapeutic dose of a 10 a 10 blend in two little cute raspberry flavored gummies and so i think that's you know again we're trying to be very mass with this and and we want to speak to the masses we want to make sure that you know for those who have an aversion potentially to mushrooms and just the word alone freaks them out let's find a format that they can actually swallow and it seems like americans have no problem eating gummies. Uh, <laughs> I love a good gummy bear for sure. I'll take a gummy any day. Gummy vitamins are great. Yeah. So we are doing that. So it's kind of, it's, it's a, it's a mushroom multi. So basically you consume it like a multivitamin every day. That's cool. That's awesome. Cool. Well, Zoe, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your story. It was really cool hearing everything. Um, you've had quite the journey and I'm excited to see where things go with Earth and Star. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.